Take your copies of the Holy Scriptures and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. So we're just getting started in this great series in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. C.S. Lewis in the preface, preface to the um, Screwtape Letters, one of his, my favorite books that he's written, uh, speaks of the progressive distortion of the pictures of angels in ancient artwork. He points back to uh, ancient times when they, uh, the paintings concerning angels were always fearsome beings, very authoritative, very powerful. Then he said we, we moved into the uh, chubby infantile mute nudes of uh, Raphael, and then finally the soft, slim, girlish, conciliatory angels of the 19th century art, shaped so feminine that they avoid being uh, voluptuous only because they're totally insipid. And then he writes, in the scriptures, the visitation of angels is always alarming. It has to be, has to be begin by saying, they always begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angels looked as if they were going to say, they're there. His point, of course, is that uh, throughout history, the, our, we come and go on many things. We vacillate from one extreme or the other. And that is true concerning angels as well. Uh, by the time we get to the New Testament era here in the first century, at this point, uh, they'd gone to the extreme of virtually almost worshiping angels, some of them were, uh, venerating angels, and uh, had lifted angels even to the point of, by the second century that some in the cults and so forth had really lifted uh, Jesus up to the level of Jesus and even saw Jesus as one of, the, one of or perhaps the greatest of the angels. And so there's often a misunderstanding concerning angels, but scriptures clarify things uh, very clearly. And so the first two chapters of Hebrews, to a large extent, is talking about how Christ is superior over all other things, including angels. And numerous times he refers to angels and Christ's superiority over them. And in the process of talking about angels, he gives us perhaps the greatest description of the superiority of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the Bible. So uh, that's not collateral, that's, that's central, but the angels, he's wrapping his discussion around the angels. So far we've seen, here's four contrasts with the, with the angels and Christ. First of all, he has a better name than them, verse 4 of chapter 1, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Uh, their angels are messengers, that's what that word means, and it says here in verse 5, you are the Son. And so he is, has a more excellent name. He is the Son. They are messengers. Verse 6, uh, he is to be worshipped. They are the worshippers. It says, and that all the angels of God worship him. Far from being on equal status with Jesus Christ, they fall down before him and worship him. And then in verses 7 and 8, they are serp servants. He is the sovereign Lord. In verse 7, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But in verse 8, he said, But of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is supreme Lord of the universe. They are simply servants of him. And so to sum it up, basically what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ is the message. They are the messengers. There's a vast difference between the messenger and the message. So picking up where we left off last time, we're going to look at a number of other contrasts in chapter 1. Today, we're going to start by the fact in, in verse 10 that He is the Creator, they are created. So verse 10 says it this way, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 
And so we start with the fact that he is the creator, they are the created. Back up to verse 4 for a moment. We're going to look at a word uh, called the word better. And we see that in verse 4, it says, having become as much better than the angels. This word better becomes a key word in the book of Hebrews. Thirteen times in the book of Hebrews, we've heard that there's something better. Christ is better, or something he has done is better, thirteen different times. And in reality, this we're going to trace this through very quickly, the, the book. But in reality, this is the outline, or could be the outline of the book of Hebrews. If you want to see what the, what the Hebrews is about, trace how he uses the word better through the text. We're going to do that right now because I think it's, it's a very, very important that we do so. Uh, and as we, as we do so, I'm going to encourage you to, to circle the word better as we go through. I've done that in green in my Bible so that I can, it stands out to me. I can see it immediately. Or if you don't want to do that, write it down in your notes somewhere. Go back home. Here, here's a, be a great thing to do this week. Go back home, read the whole book of Hebrews in one setting or two, whatever it takes you to do, and notice the outline of the word better all the way through, and you'll see how he's using this word. And so we're going to look at how he is better than all other things, and what he has brought is better than all other things. And we're going to start with chapter 7 and verse 19. If you picked up the notes this morning coming in, you'll see these ready listed for you, uh, the passages anyway. In 119, we find that he, he brings a better hope. A se, I'm sorry, 719. I've got to turn to the right page. For the law has made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of the better hope through which we draw near to God. Now remember, one of the great themes of the book is drawing near to God. Uh, we're, we were not able to do that prior to what Jesus Christ did for us. And so he, we draw near to him on the basis of a better hope. And in the context, he was contrasting the law with what Christ has come to bring. The Old Testament people were under the law of Moses. And now this new church group of Hebrews wanted to go back under the law of Moses. Uh, the, the, law, the law has an attraction for certain people. The law is very, very precise. Uh, it, it's very clear. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. And a lot of people like law. That's why legalism is so powerful and always has been powerful in, uh, in Christian circles. The grace, on the other hand, is very messy. It doesn't lay down so many rules and regulations. It's grace. And a lot of people don't like that as much. And so apparently this first generation group of Christians wanted to go back under law. It's clear. It's precise. Uh, instead of what Christ had come to bring them. But he says here he's come to bring you a much better hope. It's much better than the law. The Lord didn't come to bring you a new and better rule book. He came to bring you hope. It's a better hope. And everything is built on that. Go to verse 22 of chapter 7. And he moves right on to a better covenant. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant covenant is sort of like a contract or even more personal. The Lord made a covenant with the Old Testament people and that covenant uh, was perfect of course but the people weren't. The flaw in the covenant was that the people couldn't keep it. They, 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 they failed and it's because they failed they fell into sin and, and judgment as a result of that. So the covenant, now we have a better covenant, 
Not a covenant of law, not a covenant of do or do and don't. It's a covenant based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Here, just uh, this last few weeks, there, there have been a couple of celebrated uh, uh, contracts and union possible strikes going on in our country, the UPS and FedEx. And uh, so you've probably heard about that because everybody was nervous if they go on strike, how will you get your, your potato chips from Amazon or whatever you want to order, you know? So you've got to get those on time. So we were really quite nervous about that. And ultimately they came together and they agreed on a covenant or a contract between the two groups. Now there's something that's always true of these kinds of contracts or covenants, and that is that uh, the, the management never comes to the table with the best possible offer, right? They come kind of low. And then the union gets busy, and they say, no, you've you got to give us the moon. You've got to give us everything. And then they start negotiating and threatening strikes and threatening layoffs, and all that goes back and forth to finally they decide they're going to agree on some kind of a contract. Now, here's the difference with, with God's better covenant. He brought in the best possible deal right off the bat. You can't improve on this. You can't negotiate this. It is the best possible covenant that there is. It's a covenant with him. But not only that, but go to verse 8 of chapter 6. It's the reason why it's so wonderful. It's built on better promises. 8.6 says it this way, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is enacted on better promises. Now we only have one mediator, Hebrews tells us, between God and man, and that's Christ. When the um, UPS and FedEx went to the table, they had a, the union leaders went to the table, they were the mediators for them. We only have one mediator, and that's Christ. And he is our mediator, and he has given us a better covenant, and it's enacted on better promises. The better promises is this. In the old covenant of the Old Testament Mosaic law, it said this. Remember in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28 and other places? It said this. Obey and you will live. Disobey and you will perish. That was the, the law of the land. Obey, all is well. Disobey, all is horrible. And they could not obey. And therefore they were often under the wrath of of God. But the new covenant built on better promises said, I am basing everything I'm giving you on the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator. Jesus Christ is giving you something based on no conditions at all. It is, gift, it is a gift from, from Christ to you built on his promise to you. Chapter 9, verse 23, we see the basis of this covenant is built on a better sacrifice. 9.23, he says this, Therefore it is necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And the Old Testament sacrificial system basically covered up sin. It, it, uh, it, it mediated for a time so that God uh, would forgive them, but it, would, it never cleansed them of their sins. That re, that that remained for Jesus to come and give the perfect sacrifice before they could ever be truly cleansed of their sin. The old covenant, the old sacrificial system covered up sin. It did not cleanse us of sin. Let me give you a very crude example. Uh, you, have, you just had a big dinner at the house with a bunch of people in, and you've got a whole bunch of dishes sitting on the counter and in the sink, 
and wherever else the young people left them, and uh, they're all over the place. And so you take them, and you put them in the dishwasher. And then you shut the dishwasher door, and you don't wash them. Because you, you, you can squeeze two more cups in that dishwasher yet. I mean, you've got to be a master at that. I'm not, I'm not even a capable of loading a dishwasher. It's all of my job description. I can't do it. I'm inept. And so other people have to do that. I won't mention who. But, but, you, can, but you can always squeeze one more fork in there, right? One more cup in there somehow. And so you're going to wait. So your dishes are in there. The door is shut. So what's happened? The dirty dishes are out of sight, but they're not clean. Don't forget to do the dishwasher eventually, or you'll have another problem. But they're not clean, right? The old sacrificial system covered up the sins of the people, but it did not cleanse them of sin. That would take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the better sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 10, verse 34. Now we have better possessions. Speaking of the Old Testament people, or some of the, some of the great people in the Old Testament, uh, in, in chapter 11 especially, but he goes back to these people here at this first century church first, and he says, look, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. We have a better possession. And these people in this first century church knew that. And that is so important. Because I hear Christians all the time today worried to death about losing their property, losing their, their money, losing whatever they think is so valuable and important for them in this life. Because the government may come along and do this, that, or the other because we stand for Christ. And all that is possible. I, it's unlikely, I think, but it's possible. What about these people? They lost their stuff. Throughout the first few centuries of Christianity, there were different pockets of persecution in different locations. It didn't happen all the time, but it happened some. And some people lost their possessions. They lost their farms. They lost their money. They lost their stuff. They even lost their families sometimes. Now we think about that. Plug this back in here. We have a better possession. A lasting possession. That's different. Do you realize that? I mean, if you lose everything you've got, everything, including all your stuff and even your family, you have a better possession waiting you, a lasting one. Everything in this life is going to fade away, as we'll see, but you have a possession reserved for you in heaven. As somebody has said, our problem is not that we want too much. Our problem is we're satisfied with too little. I think it's a great statement. It's not that we're materialistic, although we often are. That the issue is we don't realize how much more of Christ we ought to cling to. Because when we cling to Christ in that way, that, that pretty much solves the issue of materialism. Possessions no longer control us because we realize our great possessions are in Him. And then in chapter 11, verse 16, he says we're looking for a better country. But that, as it is, they desired a better country, which is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He's talking here about the patriarchs like Abraham and so forth. 
They left their home country to go to a new country, one that God had promised them. But they weren't satisfied there. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one, one that would be prepared for them by God, one that would last forever. They were looking for a better country, and you and I should too. I hear people all the time saying, I'm, I want to leave Illinois. I'm, I'm I've got to, I got to leave Illinois. It's awful. I've got to go to Arkansas or Missouri or Florida, Texas. Who knows where you're going to go? You know, let me say something about that. First of all, I came here when I was 12 years old to uh, Illinois and never left. Looking back, I don't know why. All right? But I've been here for, 20, for all these years since I was 20 years old. And you know what? Here, here's a good thing about Illinois. I've said this before. Everywhere else you go on vacation is better. See? So look on the bright side of that. But then those of you that, that want to run away, and some have, you, you think you get to another state, it's going to be better. Let me tell you why. You're going to trade problems. Okay? Maybe it will be better in some places, and some places not. But this world is corrupt. This world is dying. This world is polluted. And no matter where you go, you live in this world. And on top of that, wherever you go, you take you. And you are your worst problem. Right? That's why we must turn to Christ. But these people are looking for a better country. Are you looking for a better country? Or are you satisfied here? I'm not talking about Illinois. Are you satisfied on this world? If you are, too bad. Because you ought to be homesick for a place you've never been. That should be what... It, you should occasionally be, just be homesick to be in that better country that Christ has for you and is promised to you. Chapter 11, verse 35, we have a better resurrection. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. We're going to be, have a better resurrection, a true and eternal resurrection. And we're going to be given new and glorified and resurrected bodies to live forever with Him, that resurrection is coming one day for us, a better resurrection. Verse 40, we have something better, he says, because God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Something better. Uh, the, even the Old Testament saints, chapter 11, these great uh, saints who live by faith, that they, God provided something better. They, that is not a perfection. They needed us. And we need them, something better. Then chapter 12, verse 24, the blood of Christ is better. 12, 24, he says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The earliest shedding of blood in a sacrifice goes back to the time of Abel, who did that. He made the first blood sacrifice that we know of. All the sacrifices since thousands of them, millions of them perhaps throughout the ages. Unbelievable amounts of blood that have been shed and in the form of sacrifices could never atone for your sins. It never could because only the blood of Jesus Christ, the better blood of Jesus Christ can truly cleanse us of sin to make us righteous before God, to make us holy, to make us able and capable of going to that better country at the better resurrection. The blood of Christ is better. Go back to chapter 6, verse 9. No wonder 
No wonder the author, author of Hebrews is a bit disappointed with these people. 6.9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. He's just coming off the major warning passage of the book of Hebrews. And he said, you, you, some of you may not be saved, as I look at your lives, and some of you may be saved, but I can't tell it because of the way you're living. Something is seriously wrong with you. But he says, I, I do believe you're, most of you are saved. He calls them beloved. And we're convinced of better things concerning you. Things concerning salvation. So why, why would you backtrack away from all these better things that Christ has prepared for you? Why would you want to live so far below your privileges? We expect better things of you. By the way, as I, as I keep reading through Hebrews and keep working on these messages and so forth, I'm, I'm just astounded by two things that we're going to hit time and time and time and time again. Number one, the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I want you to leave every Sunday morning. If you don't catch most of what I say, I want you to leave saying, my Savior is marvelous. He's the great Savior of the universe, the supremacy of Christ. I want to live for Him. And the second thing we're going to hit time and again is this. It's very easy for us to forget the better things that we have here. And the author of Hebrews pulls no punches. Matter of fact, he takes no prisoners. He doesn't call us to sit around in the body of Christ doing nothing. He calls on us for absolute and total and complete surrender to Jesus Christ, and nothing less will do. And he certainly pulls no punches when it comes to that. So why would anybody trade the superiority for the inferior? Because they don't understand the value of what they've got. So as you're contemplating what I'm saying here, and you're messing around in your mind about whether or not you want total surrender to Christ... Let me ask you, do you understand what you have? Do you understand the value of what is yours in Christ? When, my, when I was growing up, my brother and I uh, uh, got jobs and stuff, and my brother got a really, really good job with a bricklayer. And he, was, and he did a good job, and the bricklayer saw how good he was and overpaid him. He paid him very well. And my brother had absolutely no expenses. And so even as a teenager, he started buying cars. I didn't get my first car, though, uh, two years after we got married. I think that we actually bought one. So it was, but he loved his cars, and so he went out and bought a car. And about every two months, he traded cars. Some of you are like that, but I won't mention names. But, uh, it, so, and he had some really cool cars over, the, over that time. He had a, a 57 Chevy. Those are classics back in, even back in those days. He had, he had a GTO. And then one time he traded one of his cars. I don't remember which one, probably the 57. He traded it to somebody even up for an MG midget. Now, if you know anything about cars, you know that was a bad trade. That's a lousy car. I drove it one time. It was like driving a go-kart. You know? It was horrible. Yet you, every, you felt every bump. I was a teenager and I felt every bump. I couldn't stand the thing. It broke down every time you drove it. It was a horrible car. I remember my dad coming unglued. He, when he brought that home, said, you traded that car for this piece of junk? My dad was livid. See, my brother had extra money, but he didn't have very good sense about cars. He didn't understand the value of what he had. Now, let me plug that in here. 
If you don't understand the supremacy of Christ, then you're going to trade everything else for that, and you're going to come up the loser. You're going to live your whole life living for that which is inferior instead of for that which is superior in, G in Jesus Christ. Let's go back to chapter 1 now. I'm finally getting around to my sermon. No, this is part of it. I'm just kidding. Verse 4, he uses the word better the first time, having become as much better than the angels. And so this is the first time, and the only time here in this chapter he uses that word, but it becomes uh, the, uh, the, the, the word that is used to permeate everything else that he's going to say from that point on. The angels were inferior to Christ because they were not the message he was. They're inferior to Christ because Christ had come to bring us a new life that they could never possibly bring us. Now I'll go back to verse 10. And, uh, and the first thing, creation, and you, Lord, in the beginning lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Back in verse 2, he had already said that the Lord was the instrument, Christ was the instrument by which God created the universe. Verse 1 in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The instrument that was used to do that was Jesus Christ himself. He's the means of doing that, this passage tells us right here. And so, as, as the member of the God who is the creator, how much we appreciate him for doing so. Sometimes we take for granted that he's creator. We know he's savior, we know he's ruler, and so forth, but he's also creator. I'm going to throw a bunch of verses up here on the, on the PowerPoint now, because I'm going to run through so many things so quickly. I want you to see them, and you can jot them down later if you like. But the, um, the first one doesn't want to come up. There it is. So the angels themselves recognized that he was uh, creator and worshipped him for that. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and because of your will, they ex existed and were created. And so the angels worship Christ because he is the creator. In verse 9, if you go back to your passage, notice that he is called God here. In verse 9, he's called God. In verse 10, in verse 11, he's called Lord. That's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, the highest word in the Old Testament for God. So he's being called God here throughout this passage of Scripture. And here's another thing you might write down if you happen to have opportunity with Jehovah's Witnesses. And they'll try to tell you Jesus isn't fully God. Take them to Hebrews chapter 1. Show, us, show them what we've already showed. But here's something that most of them don't know and most people don't know. And that is these verses, verses 10 through 12, are all quotes from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. If you go back and read those, those are the descriptions of God Almighty in the Old Testament. Now they're being used to describe Jesus Christ right here. He is God. God Almighty, and these verses depict that. We have to move on quickly. Here's a second contrast in our passage between Jesus and the angels. He is immutable or unchanging. Look at verse 11. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Jesus created everything perfect, but sin has infiltrated the human race 
and, and all of creation and everything is diseased and polluted as a result of that. But now he says that, that, that as they perish and they, they will become old like a garment, like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. He's using a, a metaphor of clothing here. And like an old garment that is, is served its time and rolled up and tossed away, so is creation, and Christ is going to do that. Uh, as, a, as you think of clothing, think of, think of your clothes, you know, that you finally wear out, right? And you're going to get rid of them. Now, I know some of you men don't think that can ever happen. Have you guys ever gone to the garbage can and saw your favorite shirt in the garbage or your favorite pair of jeans that at least had 10 more years in them? You know, that's, that's why God gives us wives to make us realize we're stupid. We, we need to get rid of some stuff. Well, one day, the Lord himself is going to roll up the universe and discard it. So I got good news for you. Climate change is not going to destroy the world. You knew that. Uh, the nuclear holocaust is not going to destroy the world. The Lord is going to roll it up and he's going to discard it. And he's going to do that so that he creates a new heaven and a new earth. We see that just depicted in Second Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we, will be, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so he has told us here concerning what the Lord is doing with his creation. So the Lord will begin, had began the universe, and the Lord will finish the universe when he chooses to do so. But the, here's the contrast. He's not really talking about that. He's talking about the last part of this verse, 12. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Later on in chapter 13, he says it very concisely. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't, aren't you glad about that? He never changed. Everything else changes. Everything else deteriorates in time. But not Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me depress you. You're looking forward to this, I'm sure. Okay? Everything. People will let you down. People you thought perhaps would be your friend for life or, or be faithful to you forever turn on you and prove untrustworthy. David wrote many psalms about that as his friends and even his son turned on him. Aging. Uh, you run into somebody you've not seen for years, and my, how old they are. But they're the same age you are. But you don't look that way, of course, right? And your body starts letting you down as you get older. You, you start having problems you couldn't dream that you had when you were 20 years old. And the world conditions. Is the world getting worse? I don't really think so. Honestly, if you know history, the world's always been a mess. But it's not getting any better, I don't think. Economic booms come, and they're followed by depression. The Roaring Twenties was followed by the Great Depression. The Great Depression is followed by World War II. On and on. The world lets us down. Don't cling to the world. It's perishing. How about death? You're going to die. Your friends are going to die. We all have at the end of our, of our obituary a day we died. Death is coming. We buried, as we get older, more and more loved ones. But, 
Are you, now you're depressed enough? Here's the good news. Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never grows old. He never, he's never fickle. He never show up at his doorstep and, and he, he said, I'm not interested in you today. He's never moody. Uh, he, he always welcomes you and calls you to draw near. He, he, uh, he, he never stops loving you. He never changes his mind. He never removes his gifts. He never reneges on his promises. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You want to live for that? Or you want to live for all these things that are perishing? Count the value. See the important things. A third contrast, verse 13, he is the supreme ruler. But to which of the angels has he ever said, set up my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus alone governs over all things. This verse of scripture here is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. It is the most quoted verse in all the New Testament. It's quoted 14 different times. Even Jesus quoted it at his trial in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. And it speaks of his absolute rulership, his absolute dominance over all other things. And the picture here, in ancient times, when a, when a king conquered another king, that conquered king came before the one who conquered him, fell down on his face before the king, kissed his feet, and the king who had conquered put his feet on the neck of the conquered king, showing absolute and total dominance. The whole world is going to fall before Jesus Christ. The whole universe is going to call him Lord. The whole world is going to worship him whether they want to or not, because he is king of kings and he's Lord of lords. And he's the, he's the absolute supreme ruler over all things. General, George, General MacArthur Douglas MacArthur is famous for saying in 1942, as he was chased out of the Philippines, I will return. In, in October 20th, 1944, he came back in victory. And this is his words. This is the voice of freedom, people of the Philippines. I have returned. We look at that as a great statement. I'll tell you what, there's a better one coming. Christ will return. He's coming back. And he'll come back, not as a meek baby, not as one who died on a cross, but as a supreme ruler of the universe. I want to be there for that. And then finally, angels are servants. Well, he is a conqueror. He is a ruling conqueror. Verse 14, best known verse on angels perhaps in the Bible. Are they not all ministering spirits set out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? By the way, I should have shown you this verse of Scripture. Uh, for sake of time, I'm going to skip it. But Matt, Revelation 19, 15 to 16, he talks about his return. I'm going to move through a couple of things here quickly. What angels do. Uh, in in thir chapter 13, verse 2, we find that angels minister to us, but we may not know how they're ministering to us. We may, we, we're not going to necessarily see them. We probably won't. But angels necessarily are, serve us in so many capacities. I went through this recently when I preached on angels. So very quickly, I'm going to give you a bunch of verses you might jot down if you want to look at it again. But what do angels do for us? Well, they do a number of things. We find that they, they can be there to protect us if God chooses. Acts chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. 
we, they find in verse 7 as well. Uh, we find that they, that they can encourage us, Acts chapter 25, verses 5 to 7 as well. We find that the angels care for us at death. What a beautiful passage that is in Luke 16, 22. That the angels rejoice over every lost soul that comes to Christ in Luke 15, 10. We find uh, they're not to be worshipped or prayed to, but they are themselves worshiping the Savior themselves. And we find in, in 1 Peter 1.12 that they're extremely interested in our redemption and the plan of salvation. You see, Christ did not die for angels. When angels fell, they fell, and they never came back. The Lord did not die for them. But when mankind fell, Christ came to the earth to save us from our sins. Angels are curious about that. They want to look into that. They want to see what that's all about. They marvel at the greatness of the mercy of God. So it's no wonder, folks, as we conclude today, look at verse 1 of chapter 2, having all that he said about the supremacy of Christ, all that we've said about the, what is better in Christ, it's no wonder that he says, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so we do not drift away. He, he, he can't believe that with all that Christ has done for them, that they would even consider drifting away from this. That, that's an astounding thing to consider, folks. And again, like I said, he takes no prisoners in this book. He, he never gives us a, well, I know you're busy. I know you've got to make a living. I know you're tired. I know your big toe hurts. He never gives us breaks. He never says, well, when, when you get a little older, you can serve Christ. When you retire, you can spend more time with him. Or, no breaks. He says, why would anyone who knows the supremacy of Jesus Christ, why would anyone ever not dedicate their whole life to him? Why would they drift away? That is the call of the book of Hebrews. It is only as we embrace the sovereignty and supremacy of Christ that we begin to love and to live the truly superior and better life that he's planned for us. That's what God wants for us. That is what the book of Hebrews wants for us. That's what we want for you. Pray with me. Father, thank you now for all that we've seen in Christ here. Lord, it, it blows our mind just racing through for 40 minutes uh, the, the wonders of, of, your, of you. It just it doesn't seem right to go so fast. But we thank you, Lord, for all that you've written down for us to enjoy and to love. Lord, we are, we are weak vessels. We think of this, the greatness of angels and see the weakness of ourselves, and yet you died for us, and you want us to live for you. Oh, Father, may we do so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.